When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Clear Out Podcast, the latest Brooklyn Nets podcast on the Blue Wire Podcast Network, hosted by me, Matt Brooks. I'm a Brooklyn Nets reporter, content creator, do a variety of things, films, stats, video, writing, um, podcasts like this. So yeah, if you don't know me, nice to meet you. I'm Matt. Um, This podcast is something that I'm really excited about for this year. It's going to kind of be my baby for the 2021-2022 season and hopefully beyond. And yeah, I, I the goal here really is just to kind of like for it to be an extension of my interests. So film, stats, the things that I've mentioned. Um, and also, you know, touch on more like narrative-based subjects, which I got into, you know, I think quite a bit with uh, my first guest here who we'll be hearing from shortly. But yeah, I just, you know, briefly want to give my vision and then I'll stop talking because I'm such a rambler. Um, yeah, I mean, the vision for this is just I want to bring on national analysts like somebody like Mike Prada, who we're going to hear from. I want to bring on Nets analysts. So people, if you're a Nets fan, um, people you might know, and I'm totally willing to take suggestions of who you'd like to hear on. And then, you know, guys that are covering other teams, uh, other podcasters on the Blue Wire podcast network, you know, pre- preview games or talk about a big trade i don't know how many we're gonna get this year but that's kind of the vision here now let's hear from our first guest mike prada um just an absolute legend in this field and somebody that i have read for a very very long time let's hear from mike all right joining me for the inaugural guest episode of the clear out i have mike prada who is one of my favorite writers period somebody that's a huge inspiration for what I like to do which if you're listening you'll know I like I'm very into the details the film stuff um Mike if if Nets fans actually they should know you from your article you did last year on Prada's pictures which is your sub stack uh the piece was called no dip it was on Kevin Durant's uh return Mm -hmm. and that aged very well my friend well it did except for the fact they played only a third of the regular season but yes, it did. I, that, that, I was happy with that one. Um, happy with the title as well. Yeah, no, that was I a mean... nice little pun. That's just <laughs> obviously what I go for. Yeah, no, it, it did work out in the end. Um, of course, it helped that he was able to sit a third of the season or whatever. Yeah, I mean, so first off, like just to give a little background about it, it was kind of going over how he's going to come back really well just because of the way he shoots the ball. Um, so I just kind of was curious about like your background for that piece. Like what, how do you even think of that? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. You know, I have to remember what my thinking was a year ago. Uh, and that is very different than what it is now. You know, I, I think a lot of it is, it's just, I, I thought, I think I've been thinking a lot more certainly in the past two or three years about just how players do what they do is, as opposed to how teams do what they do. Not to say that 
what how teams do what they do is not interesting but i i don't think there's like a whole lot of secrets anymore in like sort of how you play um maybe other people feel differently but what was the more interesting and what i thought was maybe not less covered was you know how do these particularly as a game kind of spreads out what play what players skill sets need to be are just so different than what they used to be and you know Watching Kevin Durant, you know, it was a topical thing because I think for a lot of times before the season starts, you're wondering like kind of about questions that don't have an answer or questions that like people aren't necessarily thinking about. Or it's like, oh, yeah, he hasn't played in a really long time. Like, what's it going to be like? Like, it, it's kind of fun intellectually to kind of consider questions that you can't answer until later, at least for me. Uh, sometimes, yeah, maybe it works out where like you're right. And sometimes, you know, like, talking about Julius Randall figuring out playoff reads, you end up being really wrong. Um, but I think, you know, I had just done a piece over the summer, over the break on Tracy McGrady about yes. kind of thinking a little bit, again, taking it back a step back, this modern era requiring these sort of giant, long, lanky wing players to be able to do what they, to play this, what I think Seth Part now, who now I guess has a new job, uh, used to work in the book. He used to talk about this like sort of heliocentric player, where it's just it kind of occurred to me that like it's not just that you need wings to win a championship. You need like kind of six nine lanky wings who play who do everything. Like you look at all these chapters, and that kind of got me thinking a little bit because I was in a bit of a history mode, and I was writing a piece for Five Thirty Eight. I'm a Grady and Kevin Garnett. Just that a lot of players, Durant in particular credit Trace McGrady as like an inspiration. And so that caused me to look back a little bit more. And, mm. you know, why didn't he turn out to be as good as he was? And so much of that had to do with his body. His body failed him. And you look into more about why. And, you know, why was he this person that was kind of like the prototype of a movement that never really benefited from it? You know, that's sort of what it was. So my mind was kind of already primed a little bit to like stuff like injury prevention or biomechanics. And I don't have any background in this. I, just, I was going to ask, because you are so, you have such a like eye and, and just a knowledge of that. I had to, I feel like I'd I, I've had to look a lot of it up. I, I failed physics in high school. I, I don't, <laughs> I, I, sometimes I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. I just, I just thought it was an area, having thought about it more, that is just way more interesting and uncovered. Yes, and I think one where I, I think there's a lot of potential to learn for the audience to learn more about it, especially, and that is just not really paid attention to, you know, on broadcast, or whatever. So it was already kind of primed in my head, having done them a Grady piece and knowing what Durant has said. So I remember kind of having this hunch in my head that, you know, Durant's been out for what, 21 months at this point. He had this game and this body that looked a certain way. And I've been watching a lot of WNBA and I was thinking a lot about, Brianna Stewart as well, having also come off the torn Achilles. And, you know, just the, the big art overarching question of like, what was Kevin Durant going to look like? And in my head, you know, my mind was already primed to thinking about like, what is he going to look like health-wise, injury-wise, uh, recovery-wise, having seen McGrady do what he did and then also seeing Stewart kind of bounce back the way he did and she did. And I just started, started watching him a little bit more closely, watching the way he scored, watching the way that he did what he did. And it, it really occurred to me that there was something about the way his long, lanky body worked 
and the way he would step into his shots, you know, I was really watching like kind of what did his jump shots look like? What did his moves look like? Cause you know, I talked a lot in the McGrady piece about the hang dribble dribble, which is like when you would hold the ball up and then sort of snatch it and shoot and how Durant has used that move a lot as well. And you watch it a lot more and you just sort of see, he's not really bending his knees that much relative to some other shooters. You know, it's, it's a lot of just sort of this like kind of very quick arm motion up to the shot. And that got me thinking, like, if that's the case and that's where he generates so much of his power, like, maybe he doesn't need the Achilles in the same way. And then that kind of got me sort of thinking a little bit more about, like, okay, so if his jumper isn't necessarily affected too much by his Achilles and he has this unblockable shot and he, this is the foundation of his game, the threat of his jumper should allow him to be able to get by people easily without needing to plant as much. Uh, and then when you combine that with like how much time he was out, it sort of started to occur to me that like, and advances in medical science, it started to occur to me like maybe what we know about Achilles injuries doesn't necessarily apply here. There are just so many confounding variables that like make the idea of like, well, Achilles is the most damaging injury at this age to be kind of useless. And so not really applicable. And through that combination, I just sort of tried to, write it up and sort of put my put this line in the sand and say based on all of this you know i think he's going to be just fine and yeah it was would have looked really dumb if he wasn't um but and i didn't have it was just like really like studying all those details and so i don't know i just thought i get out in front of this now i kind of put this thought out there i kind of show my work which is a big part of what writing of this way is and let's see what happens and I guess it turned out this one turned out to be somewhat prescient. Although again, it helps that he got to rest a lot. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if he was ever like, if he had to play like 66 games or however many games, 72 games and, and then the playoffs, whatever. But I don't know. I think it just had a lot to do with a shift in my own brain of like, I'm going to try to pay a little bit more attention to how individual players get to certain places rather than just looking taking a step back and looking at sort of the whole picture of like how a floor is spaced. And I'm going to start to kind of pay a little more closer attention to that. And that's kind of where that, that led me. Uh, well, yeah, I mean like the, the thing that kind of just stuck out to me about it was the sort of the way of like looking at injuries, just such a different way. Cause I remember when KD at this point, it feels like old news after he was like the last guy standing on the Nets team pretty much, which is crazy to think about considering mm-hmm. he had such a severe injury. But I remember like, so, you know, people were just doing the percentage thing, the 90%. Oh, is he going to be 85%? And it was just a really detailed way to, to look at this. So I'm, I'm going to link that below um, in the description of this podcast. But yeah, I just, this is fascinating for me. And I, I just felt like I had to ask you about it. Um, well, it's interesting you say the like macro view and like part of the advantage is that you start as from that as a baseline. Like, yes, yeah. if all things are equal, like this is generally how it is. And then it just it made it easier to be able to identify like, okay, so what's different about this Achilles injury? And then you tack on 21 months of recovery, which again, that's like a huge factor that sort of is unsaid throughout the piece. Yes. Do you think it's a two-year injury? Well, if you want to, I mean, every Achilles, every Achilles is different, but I do think that in both Stewart and Durant's case, and I think for a lot of players that have recovered well, like the longer you're out for, the better you perform after the fact. And I was, I remember I was listening, I know 
Durant and Stewart and Kelsey Plum, who was also had torn her Achilles, mm-hmm. had this really interesting conversation about like kind of the rehab process. And I forget if it, I think does Brianna Stewart still have a podcast? I don't know. Or I was listening to it and it was just very interesting to hear them talk about the challenge of slowing down and the need to where, when you have all this time, you're forced to kind of fix other imbalances in your body. Hmm. You're forced to kind of look at it from a much longer lens and you're not sort of rushing to get back to the court. You're not just treating one injury. It kind of gives you a weird blessing in disguise to look at your entire Interesting. body. And having heard that it is sort of, again, triggered like thoughts of, I mean, Durant's had injuries in the past on his foot. He's had a lot of these things. And, and also when he was playing with golden state, he was rushed back. You know, he was trying to kind of put on such a heavy load and that just or added to the perception of like, yes, most injuries of Achilles. Yeah. It's not good, but almost no player has been able to have the luxury of being able to sit out this long and almost reset the way Durant had the way Stewart had. And so, yeah, I think, not just in terms of like kind of more recovery time, but it just, they were talking a lot. And I thought it was really interesting about like, just it gives you a new perspective on your craft and your whole body. And you need to kind of build again from the ground up. You have no choice. Like the Achilles in particular, it's just an injury where you're literally have to start from square one of how you move. You know, it, it's going to be interesting to see, and this is a Nets podcast, but like what happens to Jamal Murray this year do, what does he come back too soon would it be beneficial for him to sit out the whole year and rebuild his own structure you know he's got great biomechanics and can do such crazy things but did that take a toll on him you know or is he going to feel pressure to come back too soon and what is that future going to look like Durant on account of just being Durant and this is also true with Kyrie Irving and some of the stuff he's going through he just sort of has a luxury to like kind of decide when he wants to come back not everybody has that luxury right right so I think just all of that made me think again that this is just not like the other cases. Yeah, I mean, well, like Clay is a good like example for this. Like Clay, it's kind of up in the air about when he's coming back, but like I, I'm really curious to see how he responds after what he's had basically a year. Um, no, more what than that, that looks like a little bit more, right? Well, but the, the other thing that's different about him too is he had two injuries. Yeah. So that's another interesting factor. Like, I don't know if like clay is guaranteed to come back perfectly the same way KD did, even though they have similar body types and similar structures, because again, he, he, but he tore, he tore his ACL and then he tore his Achilles. Like, yeah. What does that mean? I have no idea. Um, yeah. And then it's just all these sorts of things piling up just, but I think it was very beneficial to Durant to just be able to say, I'm not coming back in 2020, no matter what bubble, whatever. And so he could always have this as a target endpoint. And I think that really helped him. And I think that may help. I don't know. I'm curious how, how it affects this year because the net stars all have the luxury of being able to kind of take it easy on their injury recovery because they right. have each other. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, and the other thing I wonder is like, are we ever going to get to a point where we look at, you know, again, not every Achilles is, is built the same, but are we ever going to get to a point where, Hey, it isn't just a, a, a whatever nine month rehab, like our guys going to, do longer rehabs in that. I don't know. I mean, it's, I don't know anything about this, so maybe I mean, not, but the, the answer is ideally yes, but not everybody is Kevin Durant. I mean, yeah, that's the yeah. thing. Like Kevin Durant can get a max contract no matter what happens. We're going to see this with Kawhi Leonard too. Like if he sits out the whole year, like not everybody has a luxury of just being able to get paid like that. Right. Right. You know, if your average player 
suffers a torn Achilles, like you cannot miss two seasons. Yep. Well, David Nwamba was out there like right away. (laughs) for Yeah. Yeah. So it's just another example, I think, of how the rich get richer and the middle class suffers. Yeah. Sorry, is this a political point? <laughs> no, 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 no. I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> We're new in this podcast. We can take this where we want. So, um, look, I want to touch a little bit on the, the their off season. Uh, I'm not going to get into too many. We don't need to get into like the too many details of this. But w- which signing that that the Nets made was the one that kind of stuck out to you? You were like, oh, for good reason or or for bad reason. I think Paul Millsup was a good pickup for what they are trying to do, yep. uh, for sure. I, you know, like he sort of transitioned into when he was with Denver last year, he was transitioning into more of a small ball backup five role. And so now without DeAndre Jordan, uh, you can kind of play that like kind of switchy five at all times. I'm curious to see how much he has left in the tank. Uh, I think this might be a particularly good fit for him, but now they also have Aldridge and they have Nick Claxton. So they're just, they have a lot of these sort of like kind of four and a halfs types. Uh, and so I'm just kind of, I'm wondering how they split up the minutes, but I, I do like, I thought the Millsap signing actually addressed some more of their needs. Whereas, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people were so praiseworthy of the Patty Mills signing and, you know, I can see the utility of Patty Mills, particularly if Kyrie Irving is going to play half the season or whatever is going to happen to him or if there are injuries. But, you know, with that salary slot, would it have been better to get someone who could defend wing players? You know, they don't really have anyone who can be a two-way wing outside of Durant, really. Yeah. And uh, so would that have been better? I'm surprised that signing got so much praise compared to some of the other ones. Yeah, I, I like Mills because he's a good player, but I also realize, you know, he is kind of, I mean, I think it sounds like they're committing to using him off ball, which I think is smart for the most part. You know, he's going to kind of come in there and replace um, the Landry Shamit role last year, but just hopefully be a little more consistent with that. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I do kind of feel like, you know, I mean, the guy they let walk, you know, whether it was financial or not, it was Jeff Green. Like that's that's that type of position, whether it needs to be him or not that's the type Mm -hmm. of guy that you could probably use. That's a guy that was able to switch around, um, you know, kind of three through five, maybe two, but I wouldn't do that. It wasn't something I'd lean on a ton, but that is kind of like the role that I'm surprised that they, they didn't go with necessarily. Um, Yeah. And I'm happy you brought up Millsap by the way, because I do think that's a good pickup. Uh, Yeah. I mean, LaMarcus all just could be really interesting. We just don't know what he looks like, you know, what, what type of, how much is going to play? Where is he going to play? What is his, I mean, is he going to be healthy? Like, obviously what you get from him is kind of a bonus ultimately. Um, you know, as far as like that role you're talking about, maybe they can get some of that from James Johnson. Uh, but I do agree that they may, and you know, I thought this during the playoff round too, and it didn't necessarily play out as I expected. You know, I thought the loss of Jeff Green would hurt them more than it did at the beginning of that Bucks series. Instead, they played their best at the beginning of the series. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I wonder if like that Jeff Green Millsap thing is like one of those swaps that makes both sides a little worse. I mean, obviously Millsap is cheaper, so that's kind of why that happened. Yeah. Um, but would it have been better? And maybe it was not something that Green went for, but would it have been better to spend Patty Mills's money on Jeff Green? I think that's a question the Nets may be asking themselves deep in the playoffs this year. Yeah, I could see it. I mean, it's really you're kind of trading out Mills and Millsap if you want to look at it that way. If you want to go glass half full for Jeff Green, yeah, I mean you could have signed Millsap too. He's a minimum player. Yeah, he's so. 
Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I actually, let me ask you this since we're, we're kind of talking about, and you mentioned it, that it is a little bit crowded in the front court. Do you feel like you could play some of these guys together? Do you think you could go any, I mean, Claxton, I think is pretty malleable, you know, kind of next to some of these other guys. Um, you know, especially like somebody like Millsap or, or uh, Blake Griffin, who's I always forget about us on this team somehow without mm-hmm. crowding it's gotten. Um, but he's I, probably I, gonna start, right? He's he's gotta be the starter. It seems like it. I they might be it's kind of hard to tell. We're at that like, you know, that point of the year where nobody's really committing to anything. Uh yeah, and, yeah you know, it's it's really early and they're just gonna use the training camp, you know, thing to to default to right when asked yeah. about it. Um, but I, it seems like they they are still just as high on Joe Harris, which I think would be the guy to get bumped um onto the bench. So yeah, I mean, I just was curious, like, which do you think you could make that work? Do you think you could pair a LaMarcus Aldridge and a, let's say, Paul Millsap? Or do you think that's just, it's too plotting and too just archaic almost in a way? In the regular season, I think you can certainly get away with it. And then if you look at all these guys as kind of innings eaters to keep your your stars fresh, I don't see that there being much of a problem. You know, in the playoffs, I think it might be a little dicier. Um you're counting on, I mean, this is the va- the real value of Durant ultimately is that he is a guy with a game of a two, three that can play, that is really a four, but can be a five. And just the, the versatility he offers in a playoff setting is just, I, there's, I don't know if there's a player in the league that can replicate it. I mean, yeah. and so it almost doesn't matter, but I do think that on some level, like the fact that Jeff Green was also slightly plastic in that regard made it easier to do that with Durant. In the playoffs, I think it's going to be really hard to play two of those guys at once. Now, again, Durant, if you can load manage Durant enough during the season where he puts together the type of two-way play that he put together in last playoffs uh, and doesn't have to do as much offensively and can really commit to like kind of what he was at the beginning of that Brooklyn at that Milwaukee series. It's just this amazing rim protector and just Romer. I don't think it really, I I think the fact that you can eat innings with those other guys, like kind of will pay off in the end. But I I think again, yeah. in the playoffs, like I'm not sure how many minutes you can play Blake Griffin and Nick Claxton together, just as an example. Um, it, it might be nice to have Jeff Green, but you know, the other thing you can do too is like kind of again, the diversity of Durant opens up a lot of different avenues. Like you can play Bruce Brown having guard threes, but basically be an offensive five, and you can play him with Blake Griffin and Durant, and you're kind of getting a lot of what you would get from a traditional five man anyway. Right. Um, there's again, there's just an elasticity to Durant that just opens up so much, uh, so much stuff that it may not matter. Um, but yeah, I, I think it would have been nice to have an, one more guy who can maybe be a diet Durant in that regard. Yeah. And also somebody that you can pair next to him, like to replace that Jeff green in those. Cause that was like their closing lineup last year. Like, and I, I, that's one of the things I'm probably watching for one of the many things I'm watching mm-hmm. for in that first month is like, who is that guy? What does it look like this year? Is that just Blake Griffin going to step in? My um, guess is that the answer is yes. That uh, when, it, when push comes to shove, that's just Blake Griffin. Cause they're at their best last year, at least um, when they played small, I mean, they were just kind of um, saleable as a team uh, when they, when they put the big three out there and played a little smaller and spaced. So 
Um, speaking of kind of things that stick out when, when you watched the Nets last year, what was the thing that stuck out to you the most? Like, what was the thing that you came away from their games? Just being like, wow, they do this really well. And they just play in so much space. (laughs) It's like, uh, when you play the Nets, I mean, this is true again, this is kind of the premise of this book I'm writing that will come out in the fall, but you're basically playing on a court that's twice the size of what it was 10 years ago all the time the nets now it's like you add even more to that you're basically playing on a court that with your five players every single spot in front of half court is relevant because they have so much playmaking shooting and off the dribble scoring in so many different areas you literally have to cover more of the court against them than you ever would against anyone else. And that's, I think, particularly deadly when they force a miss. Like, it's not even just like that they score in transition. I don't remember where they ranked in sort of transition efficiency. It's more just that, like, every time you're off a miss, you if you're scrambling even a little bit, they can t- pick you apart just using, making you having to guard all that space and you're behind on one play and it sets up another. So that's just like, it's just impossible to guard them to play. And this was, I think the fatal flaw the bucks ran into in the first teams of that series. They just, you have to play, you have to beat them on offense or on defense with your offense. You can't take bad shots. You can't right. take quick shots. You've got to sort of have like an all court strategy where you're trying to kind of mash them inside instead of letting the game be a flowing game. That's the only way you'll beat them. And if you if the game is just sort of spread out, you just have no chance. They have too much. It's not even just they have too much shooting or too much playmaking. It's that they have guys that can score at every single piece of the court. There is no weak point within that 40 feet and in there. Like it's not even like those old Houston teams where it's like, okay, we've just forced them to shoot mid-range shots. I mean, they've yeah. got they got Kyrie and Durant who can just self-create all that stuff. So, you know, I think that's the real challenge with playing against them. And it's interesting because there's all this talk of, you know, one ball, how are they going to share it? And it turns out that if you're playing in that much space against the same number of players, it kind of doesn't matter. The only place where it really matters is if you sort of literally compress the court against them, somehow make it so that they have to play. It's like, it's like in baseball, you know, if you the, the each court each field is a different size and that changes the way the game is played that's kind of what you have to do to them and i thought milwaukee had a good shot to do that and for whatever reason they didn't until like game three on and then they did and then you know obviously they might have lost anyway if there was health issues all that stuff um but that's that's what stands out to me kind of when trying to figure out like why how are they able to share the ball with each other given all those ball dominant players really that was all it was yeah they just, they just played in all that space when, when you say shrink the field like shrink the court essentially is there a team that like when i you know when talking about this i guess looking at next year's um the competition is there anybody that sticks out in that way i mean it's early so we don't yes know. milwaukee i mean yeah. frankly yeah i mean to me, like it's it, the the real shame of that series, as great as it was, is that I thought those two teams were such an interesting stylistic match for each other. Yeah, particularly with the way Milwaukee had played all year. You know, Milwaukee spent two years playing five out and playing in space, and then last year started to commit to using the baseline area, starting to mash teams. Uh, you know, playing Giannis closer to the rim rather than always further out. Right. I, that was interesting. 
what that style. And then they come out in the first few games and they just like forget who they are. And it was so frustrating as a neutral because I knew, you know, maybe they lose anyway, but I just felt like they didn't put their best foot forward. And then, then they come to Milwaukee and they rediscover kind of like, okay, this is what we have to do. We have to make this shit ugly, you know? Yeah. We have to play where Giannis is cashing the ball low and he's drawing a lot of fouls and we're just, the game is moving in sludge. I thought Philly with Embiid, with Embiid last year would have been a very interesting matchup. I don't know if they would have beaten the Nets, but you cannot play the Nets game and win. You have to play a different game. And maybe if you throw the ball into Embiid and let him control everything, you know, and the Nets obviously don't want that to happen. They wanted, they, they will run double teams and all this other junk stuff at him. And I think they would have probably won that series at full strength. I think Milwaukee, just because Giannis, you don't necessarily have to throw the ball to him is more, was more of a challenge and will be again this year. I mean, to me, it takes a team like that. Uh, Maybe if the Lakers get, are totally healthy, maybe that's another team that can kind of get there. Um, But to me, like, it's not a, it's, it ain't about like doing what like Miami's trying to do and like basically play smaller with them like you can't win that way you have to you have to just mash them and try to draw a zillion fouls and turn the game into sludge and make them I mean if they get to play free flowing in the open court off misses like you just have no chance of guarding them they're just too much space too much skill no chance but if you're constantly sort of forcing them to kind of have to grab you on the offensive glass like every offensive rebound is it's not that dissimilar from how lebron played the warriors in that first warriors Cavs finals you know maybe not as exaggerated but um so a team that can do that is with the best shot and i think milwaukee is the team that comes to mind i mean that if those teams are healthy i think that is a fascinating stylistic series i wish we got it last year and we still got something great but you know, I think I don't think just adding in Kyrie and Harden would necessarily have made as big a difference as adding one plus one plus one and equaling three. I'm not sure that changes the fundamental reality of like the Bucks can muck it up and the Nets can't. How do the Nets respond? That's an interesting point. I haven't heard anybody uh, make that. Why do you think that? Well, because what do I think? What that it wouldn't have just, been one plus. Yeah, if it's it wouldn't be one plus one. Well, I mean, I think. Part of it is, I'm not saying that it would be like zero. Like, yeah, I'm not yeah, saying yeah. that it would have been nothing. But I think, again, like fundamentally, the only way you beat the Nets is you create a style of play where each of those three players has to work harder mm. to get what they want. If you allow it to, so that the game is open and they can just kind of play off each other, it's just too easy for them. But if you try to compress it, if you try to make it so that now they're dribbling too much and you're against a set defense, you know, you're seeing their tendency to maybe play one-on-one freeze out the rest of the team. You know, you're, they have to kind of compete on defense, which I think is another huge thing. Like the bucks will, would have made them guard defend, you know, if you're kind of having to deal with Drew Holiday and your grill or posting you up or just being physical with you the whole game, if you have to deal with sort of a Bucks team that's just kind of constantly crashing the glass and you're always having to, if you're Durant in particular, you're always having to put a body on somebody and no rebound is clean. And it's just, a, you know, the more times you're bumping bodies, that's going to affect how the flow goes on the other end, you know, because 
I think it's still accurate to say that given the talent that they have, there are, there is going to be tendency or moments where like the flow will not be there because all those guys think that they can just take the ball and play their solo act, you know, dribble a lot and whatever. The way you get that flow is that you just sort of are able to run and play within sort of a quick pace. But again, if you don't have that, now you're still, you know, okay, maybe Kyrie and Harden are more likely to make those shots than if Durant, you know, is always doing it. Like, the Nets would have won that series if those guys were healthy. But I do not think it would have been a blowout, and I don't think it will be a blowout this year as long as the Bucks are able to ground them in the sludge. You still have the same fundamental problem if you're the Nets, whereas you just have it with more talent. So I think that's really what it, it ultimately comes down to. So I, that's why I think the Bucks, even though if you look at sort of top to bottom, like would you rather have Drew Holiday or Kyrie Irving take a tough shot for you? I mean, yeah, we know the answer to that. Would you rather have KD or Giannis? Would, all these sorts of things. It doesn't change the fundamental stylistic difference that could have can neuter all three of those guys and limit their production a little bit more. Um, so that's why I'm not sure it would have – dramatically transform that series. It would have clearly affected the result. If Kevin Durant's toe is like a tiny bit shorter, they would have won the series. So obviously adding in Harden and Kyrie being healthy would have made a much bigger difference than that. But I'm just not sure that that's the bucks were unworthy winners that like would have had no shot if everyone was healthy in that series. I think that would have still been a very competitive, challenging series. Everything about Giannis would have still been very difficult for the Nets to deal with regardless of where they have Harden or Kyrie. And, you know, so that's, that's sort of where I'm, I'm thinking, you know, basketball's not a game where one plus one plus one equals three. Yep. It's yeah. It's not. Sometimes it equals 33 and sometimes it equals uh, 0.33. I don't know. I'm trying to think about like what <laughs> 1.3. <laughs> we'll go with that. That works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I think you kind of touched on it. Is your kind of your biggest weakness with this team outside of health? Um, is it just their interior defense? Is that, and do you think they kind of addressed that this year? Well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but uh, I mean, I think they're they're clearly a little weak with wing defense. Um, interior defense, I think they'll they'll be okay. The, the way I put it is that in order to pr- sort of stop these kind of more physically imposing attackers they need to junk things up more than most contenders. They need to kind of do what I think was working in the first two games of that series. And just, they have to rely on sort of these scrambling and junk schemes. Whereas it would be nice if they had some players that could just meet that challenge head on. Right. And so they didn't have to sacrifice as much in terms of leaving other guys open or sort of give up something else in order to, play that style like you know maybe junking it up would work but that's i think the biggest weakness that they have is that they don't have i mean james johnson is really the only guy on that team that can kind of play that role and i think he's too erratic and his shot is too broken uh to do that in the playoff series so that's i think the way i would pose the weakness you know whether that reflects on the interior or whether that reflects on they give up a lot of open threes because they're overprotecting the interior yeah you know or whether that reflects on like kind of someone like Giannis just being uh, unable to be stopped and you have a scenario kind of like what happened in the NBA finals where 
Giannis is either only can only be guarded by your center or nobody. That perhaps is sort of where this could fall apart. Um, but I don't know. It's perhaps slightly more complicated than saying that they are weak in this specific area or not. I think it would just be nice if they had another way. Like I, I think that if the game slows down to sludge, they do have some challenges where they don't necessarily right now have a player that other than a plan to beat that other than just like, let's hope our, our great players hit tough shots, which they can do, but they can't always do. What, like what, so when you're talking about somebody that's going to come in there um, just cause I, I know like some people might be interested, like if there is, is there an example, like a player that would kind of fit that role? Not that doesn't have to be somebody that they can acquire because I think they're kind of, they're locked into who they are at this point. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing uh, they're, they are who they are. But when you, when you say that, like what player kind of comes to mind for somebody that would be able to help with those type of things? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, I'm trying to think again of that Patty Mills salary slot that kind of keeps coming. I keep coming back to, Oh, um, it's all good. You know, was that really the best use of the taxpayer mid level? I mean, I have to, think about who was available but you know someone i mean the, the, the guy the poster child for this type of player and they don't have this and i don't think this player would fit in very well in the system is someone like a jay crowder mm-hmm. or uh someone like that uh, that level of sort of wing talent um i'd have to think about sort of who around the league would fit uh you know maybe if we look at some of these kind of other contenders um who they have let me think about that that's a good question uh i'd have to let me look at this year's free agents like you know <laughs> again from this past year because i think again the, the only way you solve that problem you know the guy i'm thinking of like kind of historically is like who is their shane battier mm. like what miami got out of shane battier uh james posey back in the day um with miami when they won the title and with boston that's the player that I think it would be nice if they had. Those players are hard to find. Um, but I, I do wonder if, like, prioritizing Patty Mills instead of maybe looking for somebody who could have been that player. And again, I'm, I'm looking at free agents to see, like, kind of who might have fit the bill uh, for that type of player. I mean, they're, they're hard to find, obviously. Um, with, with Patty, do you think he's just, like – duplicative to a degree or is it just that didn't really fill like a quote-unquote need what's the difference between the two turn it back around on me i I mean it seems seems like they're basically saying the same thing yeah so let's like like a nick batum would have been amazing yeah um and look these guys are hard to find but um you know maybe i think the hope is that bruce brown kind of is that guy even though he isn't doesn't have the classic profile of it uh, but yeah, I think that's the type of player they're missing. And it, as far as the question of, of Patty Mills, I mean, I think you're basically saying like, here's a guy that can play when Joe Harris or Kyrie Irving isn't. And then, you know, maybe again in the regular season, that's valuable, but like, what if Joe Harris and Kyrie Irving are playing? What do you do mm-hmm. with them then? Right. I mean, that's sort of the, yeah. the challenge and, you know, he's getting up there and, he's not particularly positionally versatile defensively. And, you know, you also drafted a guy like him and uh, what's the name of the Cam Thomas. And it just seems like they've got a lot of guys like that already. So, I mean, maybe he was just, I think at that point there was just like, this is the best guy we can reasonably get, which perhaps, um, but I wonder, 
I do wonder if like that decision may come back to bite them a little bit. Uh, again, I, you know, the best guy that we're talking about might really just be Jeff Green at the end of the day. That was my gut reaction when it, when it happened, I kind of, you know, Patty Mills, I think a, it's a familiar name. We associate him with big shots and clutch moments. And like, I think also it's a very sensitive subject um, on this side of things with uh, let's call our shooting specialists hitting clutch shots. That was a big thing that I think was a, just with Joe Harris last year. And Oh, you mean just the overreaction to his, uh, his rough playoff. There's also, I mean, I don't know. This is just me speculating, but like, this was also right around the time Patty Mills was lighting up for FIBA and FIBA play. I wonder if that, um, maybe unconsciously like kind of biased people, but that's just a speculation. <laughs> it could be. I don't know. He's, I mean, he's known marks forever. So yeah, uh, that's, that's I mean, like, you know, someone that I think might've worked out. I don't think, I don't know if he was actually feeling like a Garrett temple. It would be nice to have a Garrett temple type of player on this team. And he was on the team a while back. Yeah. Weird you know? iteration of the team. That was the year they didn't have KD and it was just kind of like, they did not have an identity the entire right. year. Yeah. So, yeah, just someone that like can play pretty well off, uh, like kind of those like uh, uh, Marcus Morris kind of served this role for the Clippers, and they couldn't have gotten him. Like they don't have that guy, you know. Where again, the plasticity, but also the ability to kind of, again, he's equally useful if the game is spread, but if the game is not spread, he can hit a, he can hit a shot, he can kind of juice some things up, he can make a big defensive play. Again, I, I guess Bruce Brown is that guy. Um, be nice. I think that's kind of the best shot you get, but I mean, there are going to be games where he's not playing very much. Um, so I, you know, you just wonder, like, did that team, if they don't win the title, let's put it this way. If they somehow don't win the title, cause I think they're the favorites, that might be a reason why that you never got that guy. Ooh, that's, I like it. Um, speaking of like, where do you see them finishing regular season postseason? Um, I mean, it seems like it's titled or bust just talking to everybody and talking to you, but where do, where do you see them finishing out this year? Uh, most wins in the league and they win the championship. That seems like the most likely scenario. Again, How many wins? What is their, their over under is like comically low. I saw it. Yeah. It's, I think it's below. I want to say it's in like the fifth, like mid fifties. Is that, could that be it? Could that, I don't know. I think it's, yeah. Like, I mean, I mean, I think they're going to win 60 games. I don't really see too many reasons why they wouldn't. I mean, they won how many pro rate over a two game season, given all the absences they have now. I mean, maybe if some of this Kyrie Irving noise, like bubbles over, like maybe that screws things up. I don't really know what's going on there. I'm just sort of kind of waiting that out. Uh, But uh, you know, if everybody's relatively healthy, they should have the most wins in the league. I don't really see, even if they, their guys are low managed. I mean, they just have so much talent. And then, Again, like in the playoffs, uh, I think they're likely to win the title. If they don't, it's probably because some team has grounded them down. You know, it's funny, like the Bucks. obviously the injuries were unfortunate last year. Like that was like kind of unlucky. But there is a potential. It is no interesting to think about how the Bucks basically won that series by outlasting them. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that like kind of there's something about the way the Nets play that predisposes them to injury anything any more than how the players naturally would be. But 
I do think it was interesting that like they started off that series flying and then it progressively got harder and harder and they had to grind more and more as the series went on. You That's know, they, really interesting. And also when you consider too, like how, how few players they played, um, I know that was a big, probably a big thing in, in among Nets fans. Like kind of, why aren't you playing some of these guys that played off during the season? Like they just looked tired by the end. They looked like they had less energy. And they looked yeah. like they had been worn down. And some of that is obviously because of the injury, probably a big degree of that. But like some of that is also, again, inherent to how they play. So that that to me is the only way that they really fall short. That, and, and how Milwaukee plays too. Just it, it was exhausting to kind of, you know, even though they weren't necessarily playing the way they were in the regular season, it's still just, it's tiring to deal with Giannis for, for seven yeah. games. I mean, it, imagine... Imagine being Kevin Durant and like PJ Tucker's in your grill for yes. five games straight. Like, yeah, I mean, you had big numbers, but again, when it came down to the time when you needed to win, you had nothing. You use it all up in game five. With if so, let's see these teams face this next year. And like this is you know, Grant, I don't think Milwaukee. I mean, actually, what do you think of Milwaukee's offseason? Uh I think they did pretty about as well as they could. I uh, I think it was fine. I I I would not have kept BJ Tucker. I think Ooh. they don't need him that badly. I like the Grayson Allen pickup. They're going to get DiVincenzo back. It's nice that they kept Bobby Portis. I mean, I expect them to be about as good as they were last year. Where do you I mean, see? To, to me, like, the, I don't really see any way that they're not the two teams in the Eastern Conference Finals unless there's a – it's hard for me to envision that not being the case. Yeah, I mean, it would have to be a, like – I mean, Philly, who knows – I guess Miami. I'm. I like Atlanta more than other people. Me too. I don't know if I'm irrationally high on them. I just. I think they have. You know. I mean. I. It's tough because it's another. It's the season after the compressed season. So my mind is kind of gravitated towards like. Okay. I just. I'm. Maybe it's the PTSD from last year. But I. I do think these younger teams where it's after such a like traumatic year. Honestly, I, I wonder if that's going to pay off. And they're really deep. Like really, that's really, a, really right. deep. I, I think it's crazy. It's very strange to me how Miami is considered a t- ahead of Atlanta. I just I have a hard time seeing Miami finishing with a better record than Atlanta or even going further in the playoffs. There's, it's a massive depth difference. And like, yeah, okay, the Hawks probably won't make the conference finals this year, but they had so many like weird things happen to their rotation during the season. That and they also had like a bad coach for half the year like to me they're more likely to win like 50 55 games than miami is i'm not sure miami's the top 16 this year but they'll see about that Ooh, uh who do you who do you have like top six then are, are you who are you like irrationally bullish on or not even irrationally but just was relative say, to what she's what other people say what damn, other people irrationally say. huh yeah. um my general thought on this is that some of the teams that suffer i, I think that last year is going to be less predictable predictive as to what happens this year than a typical year because so many things were different i think the teams that perhaps did the least in the offseason and had like tumultuous weird circumstantially disappointing years last year are going to be generally better than we think and i'm mostly looking at boston indiana and toronto as teams that i think will play much better than they did last year without actually changing all that much just because it will be a more normal season um, I'm not sure all of them are going to finish ahead of Miami. They probably won't, but I, I would say that as a general rule, the overachieving teams from last year are going to underachieve and the underachieving teams last year are going to boomerang back to normal more so than I would say in a normal year. So like 
You look at like the Knicks. I know they had some good offseason moves. I think the conditions will not be as favorable for them this year. And I I don't see that. I'm not sure they're going to duplicate what they did. Whereas you look at Boston, like everything went wrong last year, even not necessarily just because of injuries, but just like the vibes were all off. You know, the vibes are very different this year. That's just going to like, it's almost like these teams will progress to the mean. Um, Indiana made a huge coaching upgrade. Yeah, totally. It's going to make a big difference. So I don't know if they're all going to be better than Miami. Probably not. But in general, I'm like kind of using last year as less of a baseline for this year than I usually do. Well, look, I want, first off, thank you for joining me uh, this afternoon, evening. Um, but I want to let you plug away. I know you have a book coming out, and we kind of talked about this before we started recording. <laughs> I'm already – I'm interested, man. I'm, I'm waiting yeah. for this thing to come out. I'll, I'll be buying this. Well, you're going to have to wait out. a while. You're going to have to wait a year because it's not coming out till next fall, and I'm not even <laughs> done with it. But, uh, yeah, that's why, that's why you haven't heard much from me. I've been trying to focus on finishing this, this uh, book. It's with um, Triumph Publishing, the same group that's – doing Jake Fisher's book, doing Seth Partnow's book, doing uh, Alex Wong's cover story book. And, the, you know, they came to me, they wanted me to do like sort of a, a how does basketball work type of explanatory book. And it's kind of evolved more into the game itself is so different than it used to be. What are, what does it mean to be a basketball? What does everything that we thought we knew about basketball mean now in a world where teams are shooting 53 pointers a game? And that goes for how do we consider big fundamental questions about strategy that goes for much more kind of X's and O's tactics. And I think the piece that I'm currently working through the last part of it, what does that mean for how players, player skill sets and literally what players look like, you Mm. know, what does it mean that if the game's played in this much space, like what type of body do I need? Like, how does it affect how I read the floor, what, how does it affect, like, kind of how, even, like, down to there's a chapter I need to work on, on, you know, dribbling and just sort of the cadence of your steps and, like, kind of this, the Euro step revolution is kind of how I'm kind of picturing it in my head, you know, if you're more, if this, all this space is allowing you to take two steps at a gather and you're now learning how to maximize it, what does that mean for, like, kind of what, what we train and how does that affect, you know, how the rules work and how, how we drive to the basket and, you know, just sort of these like sort of very fundamental things of like what moves we use and how we sell our moves. It's totally changed based on how the game so much has changed over the last five, 10 years. So I like to think of it as like a reintroduction to how basketball works now and sort of, we'll see where it ends up going. I need to finish it, but that's why you haven't heard much from me. I've been like kind of really diving into that. Well, I'm going to let you go finish it right now. (laughs) Mike, Mike, thank you so much for joining me. Um, It was a pleasure having you on and I can't wait for your book. Thank you. I appreciate the support. Good luck with the season. Uh, I always, always love seeing Nets daily thrive. It's uh, I've been familiar with the site for 15 years now, so it's been very fun. Yeah. 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 Bob, Bob, if you're listening to this, it was, uh, it was good to meet you when I did. I wish, uh, wish we could still work together a little bit more, but alas. (laughs) Well, thank you again. Um, and thank you everybody for listening.